Welcome to the History of Chemistry podcast. I'm Steve Cohen, your host, and this is episode 44, Teflon Don, in which we explore the chemistry of the element fluorine. Thanks to those who already support this podcast. Support the continuation of this podcast at Patreon. The website is www.patreon.com forward slash the history of chemistry. Minerals containing the element fluorine were known to the ancients, but they had no idea that the element fluorine was involved. A handful of ancient carved objects made of fluorite are known. Another mineralogical name is fluorspar, and chemically we now know it is calcium fluoride, but the crystal is fairly soft, so not much has survived, if it was indeed used commonly at all. Both Roman carved fluorite and Native American carved fluorite are known. We must turn to our Renaissance buddy Agricola for the first clear mention of fluorite as a separate mineral, when he described it as a flux, a means for aiding the melting of ores. German, of half a millennium ago, called this mineral schöne Flüsse, for which Agricola named in Latin fluores, because it helped metals to flow in the smelting process. Over time, the name fluores evolved into fluorite and fluorspar. The first inorganic compound synthesized from fluorine, still unknown as an element, was in 1764, when German chemist Andreas Sigismund Margraf heated up fluorite in sulfuric acid in a glass container. The product, which Margraf realized was acidic, etched the glass vessel heavily, so he coined the name Fluss-Spatz-Siran, in literal English, fluorspar acid. In English, the new compound was called fluoric acid. Just after Lavoisier's chemical revolution, the French physicist André-Marie Ampère, yes, the unit of electrical current is named for him, suggested that fluoric acid was really a compound composed of hydrogen plus the unknown element. Humphrey Davy named this unknown element fluorine after the mineral with the "-ene suffix, like chlorine, bromine, and iodine. Ampère, however, suggested the name for the unknown element to be phthor, P-H-T-O-R, from Greek phthorios, that is, destructive, because it's so nasty to a variety of other substances, even glass, which is usually regarded as remarkably stable. Some Slavic languages and Greek do call the element a variant of phthor. Because of the element's high reactivity, chemists attempted for years dangerous experiments to isolate it. Humphrey Davy was even partly blinded in his attempts. Gay-Lussac and Tenard became severely ill. Arthur Greenberg, in his book A Chemical History Tour, suggests some might call fluorine the Tyrannosaurus rex of the elements, but he prefers to think of it as the Tasmanian devil of the elements. 
even electrolysis was not effective throughout the mid-19th century. For example, the French chemist Edmond Frémy tried to get dry hydrogen fluoride to conduct electricity so that electrolysis would happen, but dried HF doesn't conduct electrical current. Until one of Frémy's students, Henri Moisson. I briefly mentioned Moisson's work in an earlier episode, but I will talk a bit more here about it. He combined potassium hydrogen difluoride and hydrogen fluoride and got a conductive HF solution of these compounds. Then he constructed apparatus with extra precautions to be corrosion-resistant. Vessels were made of a mixture of iridium and platinum, which is more chemically inert than pure platinum, and used fluorite stoppers, chilled the solution to minus 50 degrees Celsius, and electrolyzed it. He published his success in 1886 on collecting pure fluorine gas. To view his success, he made special viewing tubes from platinum with fluorite windows, noting a slight yellowish color. He received the Nobel Prize in 1906 for this feat, winning the honor over Dmitry Mendeleev by one vote. So, why is fluorine so nasty? Well, it's at the upper right of the periodic table. Its electron shell configuration is that the n equals 2 shell, its outer shell, is one shy of an octet, as Langmuir would have said, or that modern quantum mechanics says one electron missing from a full shell, having both two s electrons and five of the six 2p electrons. Therefore, it needs only one more electron for a stable, complete shell. That's not so different from, say, chlorine or bromine or iodine, the other halogens in that column. So why is fluorine even more reactive? Because the 2s shell is not as far away from the nucleus as the other valence shells in the halogens lower down in the periodic table. The valence electrons in the other halogens are partly shielded from the nucleus and its attractive protons by the inner shells of electrons. Fluorine has only a 1s shell with only two electrons to shield the n equals 2 outer electrons from the nucleus. The protons in fluorine's nucleus feel grabbier for one more electron, shall we say, than even the other halogens. For some time, fluorine was considered a scary reactive anomaly, which chemists were understandably leery of handling in the laboratory. In the meantime, a newfangled apparatus was entering homes, now wired up for electricity. This apparatus was the refrigerator, invented in 1913, though commercial large units were known for some time before. Mass-produced home refrigerators came on the market in 1918, And these first units had the cold container in the kitchen, but the compressor had to be installed elsewhere, such as the basement. Often, these systems were more expensive than Ford's Model T cars. By the 1920s, the early refrigerators used refrigerants such as ammonia, methyl formate, or sulfur dioxide, all of which were rather toxic when the inevitable leak occurred in the refrigeration unit. 
Three companies decided to work together to solve this problem: Frigidaire, General Motors, and Dupont. So, in the late 1920s, Charles Kettering of the General Motors Corporation hired Thomas Midgley Jr. to find a safe replacement for these nasty compounds, a chemical that would be colorless, odorless, tasteless, non-toxic, and non-flammable. Midgley's team came up with the compound dichlorodifluoromethane (CCl2F2), which they named Freon 12 and patented it in 1928. And it fit the bill remarkably. Midgley demonstrated how safe Freon is at the American Chemical Society in 1930 when he breathed in a lungful of dichlorodifluoromethane. And exhaled it onto a candle, and extinguished it. With this new refrigerant and similar non-reactive compounds, the use of refrigerators and then air conditioners all around the world expanded rapidly. Freon 12 was the go-to refrigerant for most of the 20th century. Food didn't go bad within a few days; it would last a lot longer. People could be comfortable in hot weather. We'll be right back. Hi, and welcome to Hiss and Tell, a cat podcast where we delve deep into the fascinating world of feline behavior. With your host, me, Christina Wilson, a professional animal behaviorist. Each episode features insightful discussions with leading veterinarians, dedicated researchers and scientists, experts in cat behavior and training, and so much more. Join me as we decode the complexities of pet loss, unravel the mysteries of feline health and behavior, and discover the latest research findings. I'll meet you at Hiss and Tell. There is another important use for Freon: aerosol spray can propellant. It was a nearly perfect compound to mix with consumer products such as perfumes, insecticides, deodorants, and more. It's inert and safe. Spray cans contain a propellant with its boiling point just below room temperature. Freon 12's boiling point at typical atmospheric pressure is minus 30 degrees Celsius, but is a bit higher inside the pressurized can. After sealing the can with its propellant and product, the liquid and vapor reach equilibrium at a relatively low pressure. When you push the button on top of the can to open the valve. The extra pressure inside pushes the mixture out of the can in aerosol form, tiny droplets. As the pressure drops inside of the can, the propellant evaporates away into gas, holding the internal can pressure constant. This method is safer because you don't need such a high pressure as with pure product. It also keeps a mostly constant pressure inside. You don't need extra parts on the can. Such as a pressure regulation system, but because Freon is so incredibly inert under normal everyday conditions, it sets up other problems, which we will explore in a future episode on environmental chemistry. Let's move forward a few years to 1938. And back to the industrial chemical behemoth, Dupont. Fresh from their success with nylon, Dupont hired a newly minted doctorate, Roy Plunkett, 
to research more about refrigerants. In his work, he synthesized 40 kilograms of tetrafluoroethylene gas, C2F4. The gas has the same structure as plain old ethylene, C2H4, but with all the hydrogen atoms changed into fluorine atoms. The gas he placed into small iron gas cylinders, which he stored on dry ice, that is, frozen carbon dioxide, to prevent any reactions till necessary. We recall from thermodynamics and kinetics that reactions generally go faster in warmer temperatures. One day he wanted to react the gas, but nothing would come out even though it weighed exactly the same as when new. So he decided to tip over the iron cylinder to see what was going on. Several white flakes drifted out. As Plunkett later described, quote, We scraped around with a wire inside the cylinder to get some more of the powder. What I got out that way certainly didn't add up, so I knew there must be more inside. Unquote. He and his assistant cut open the cylinder to inspect. Inside the gas cylinder was no gas at all, but white waxy powder. Even though Plunkett was hired as a refrigerant chemist, he was clever enough to analyze whatever this weird product was. The material was heat resistant, it was chemically inert, and Interestingly enough, it had a very low amount of friction. Other materials wouldn't stick to it. Plunkett realized that somehow his tetrafluoroethylene gas had polymerized into a plastic, now called polytetrafluoroethylene or PTFE. The fluorine atoms grabbed onto the carbons so strongly that nothing else could react with it. DuPont realized they had something on their hands. And thus began a project to characterize and commercialize it after they patented it in 1941. But with World War II now in the works, PTFE found use as a coating on seals and valves used in the Manhattan Project at Oak Ridge, Tennessee, to develop an atomic bomb. The active ingredient for the bomb, uranium hexafluoride, emits small amount of caustic fluorine gas. And PTFE is impervious to fluorine. DuPont's offshoot firm for PTFE trademarked the name Teflon in 1945. Teflon itself is a contraction of sorts of polytetrafluoroethylene. Commercial baking uses began by 1951. PTFE's most famous use originated in the 1950s. At that time, a French engineer, Marc Grégoire discovered how to bond PTFE to aluminum. Recall that PTFE is remarkably inert, so other substances won't stick to it. He figured out how to roughen the aluminum surface and coat a primer, a kind of intermediary glue, between the aluminum and PTFE using high heat. His first idea was to coat fishing tackle with PTFE, but his wife, Colette, Suggested pots and pans. They founded the Tefal Company in 1956 and made a worldwide business of nonstick cookware. After the U.S. government agency, the FDA, approved PTFE for food handling in 1960, Marion Trezolo, an entrepreneur, began selling through his company laboratory plasticware fabricators, a domestic produced Teflon pan in 1961. 
Trizolo called his product the Happy Pan, which came with a free spatula. There are a number of environmental hazards, though, associated with PTFE-coated pots and pans, which we will also explore later on. I will say that PTFE begins to melt at 327 degrees Celsius, and the maximum recommended temperature for cooking with fluorinated coatings is about 260 degrees Celsius. Among other uses, PTFE is incorporated now into raincoats because it is highly water repellent, and coated onto fabrics for furniture and clothing because it repels dirt and oils. The Scotchgard brand spray is a form of PTFE in a can. Perhaps you've bought a roll of so-called Teflon tape at your local hardware store to use as a sealant where plumbing parts join together. And then Wilbert or Bill Gore, a manager at Dupont, got fed up with Dupont's indifference to creating Teflon insulation for wiring. He left the company in 1958, and eventually his son Bob worked out how to do this, founding the W. L. Gore and Associates firm. An accident while attempting to stretch PTFE rods slowly led to the rods expanding by 800 percent, creating an expanded PTFE material containing 70 percent air, which eventually became the textile Gore-Tex in 1969, used for breathable water-repelling fabrics. There is yet another use for organofluorine compounds as fire extinguisher agents. Invented jointly between Dupont and the U.S. Army in 1954, and sold commercially as a firefighting chemical starting in 1963, the generic group of fluorine-based small organic molecules called halons became widely popular because of how effective they are. Bromochlorodifluoromethane (CBrClF2) or halon 1211. was used in portable fire extinguishers while bromotrifluoroethane CBrF3 or halon 1301 was used in permanent fire extinguishing building systems another similar molecule dibromotetrafluoroethane or halon 2402 was popular in eastern europe Their value for stopping conflagrations lies in how they cut off chain reactions in combustion and that they are non-conductors of electricity. Therefore, they are valuable for stopping fires in electrical systems. Why their manufacture is now banned and usage severely curtailed is the subject of a future episode. While all this organic experimentation was going on in fluorine, there was a medical effect of the element discovered. We return to the beginning of the 20th century when a new dentist, Frederick McKay, from University of Pennsylvania, my alma mater, moved to Colorado Springs for health reasons. Upon working as a dental assistant there, he was shocked for two reasons. Firstly, many patients had ugly brown spots on their teeth. With a few showing pitted tooth enamel, and secondly, the dentists there didn't seem to care about this problem. After a stint in orthodontic training from 1905 to 1908 in St. Louis, 
he moved back to Colorado Springs and continued to ponder this so-called Colorado brown stain. He presented a patient with the staining at the Colorado Dental Association meeting that year, but again nobody seemed interested. He finally got a couple of other dentists to come to the Colorado Springs school board and convinced them to let him examine the students' teeth. The dentists inspected 2,945 children in the spring of 1909. They discovered that 87.5% had some amount of Colorado brown stain, all in the Pikes Peak area. Local hypotheses included too much calcium ions in the water, poor milk, or even eating too much pork. Dr. McKay got Dr. Green Black, yes, that was his name, the dean of Northwestern University Dental School in Chicago interested, and Black visited to see for himself. Till Black's death in 1915, he and McKay worked together and discovered two important points about Colorado Brown's stain. One, the staining arose from imperfect development of children's teeth. People who moved to the area after getting their adult teeth would not get the stain. Two, teeth with the stain were somehow resistant to tooth decay. McKay still thought maybe the water was the problem. Black was skeptical. But in 1923, McKay visited Oakley in Idaho to inspect another case of brown staining after a public water supply was installed to a nearby natural spring. He didn't know the cause, but advised the locals not to use that water source. After they took his advice, no new staining was found, and it was pretty clear that the water was at fault. Then another report of similar staining in Arkansas appeared. So McKay and Dr. Grover Kempf, an employee of the U.S. Public Health Service, visited the town of Bauxite. The town was basically owned by the Aluminum Company of America, the company which Charles Hall of the Hall Aluminum Process started. Another town only five miles away had no staining. Aluminum Corporation was worried that bad press about aluminum cookware would destroy its business, so its own labs ran spectrographic analysis of the water, the tests that Bunsen and Kirchhoff had invented 75 years earlier. They found fluoride in the water and wrote to McKay of the results. Fluoride ion is a fluorine atom, but with the extra electron in its outer shell, happy and stable, owning an octet of electrons. So now the Colorado brown stain became called fluorosis. What levels of fluoride might cause this problem, and what wouldn't? In 1931, Dr. H. Trendley-Dean head of the Dental Hygiene Unit at the National Institute of Health, NIH, charged Dr. Elias Elvove, a senior chemist at the National Institute for Health, with finding out about this fluoride concern. Elvove spent a couple of years developing sensitive analytical tests for fluoride, down to 0.1 parts per million. Then, through the 1930s, he began testing water samples around the country for their amounts of dissolved fluoride ions. The result was that fluoride concentrations up to about one part per million don't cause brown staining. Dean then wondered if there was a way to help prevent cavities and simultaneously not cause fluorosis 
by adding a small amount of fluoride ion to local water supplies. The first test came in Grand Rapids, Michigan, where the rate of tooth decay dropped 60% among children by the 1950s. And fluoridated toothpastes also are an effective way to strengthen teeth against decay. Teeth are made of a mineral called hydroxyapatite. Yes, a good name for an oral mineral, with calcium cations, phosphate anions, and hydroxide anions. Fluoride apparently bonds to the mineral to give fluoroapatite, making the tooth more resistant to acids promoting decay. So, consult with your dentist and get enough fluoride on your teeth to prevent decay, but not too much to get brown spots. It's not a communist conspiracy. Finally, we turn to those compounds finally made with the so-called inert gases, now called noble gases, starting in 1962. If you expected to find fluorine as a component of these compounds, because of its reactivity, you'd be right. We have xenon difluoride, xenon tetrafluoride, and xenon hexafluoride, along with krypton difluoride. There is even a radon difluoride and an argon fluorohydride, H-A-R-F. If any element would react with these practically inert elements, it would be fluorine. In our next episode, we switch from practical chemistry to theoretical chemistry, how chemists interpret physically what happens when molecules react. Until then, brave the elements! Thank you for listening to the History of Chemistry podcast.